This week, Mitya Kolshek from Across Security is with us to discuss patching without applying patches. Ooh, mysterious, huh? Then Vikram Asnani from CyberGRX joins us to talk about cyber risk intelligence tools. Finally, in the enterprise security news, Securonics raises a $1 billion round. <laughs> it's not a valuation, folks. That's a, a funding round. And Vista led, uh, led by Vista. Salt Security becomes a unicorn. Legit Security raises a totally legit 26.5 million Series A. Vicarious and Kalamu raise Series A's. Permit.io, KSOC, Titanium, Canonic Security, Allure Security, and Secure Things all pick up seed funding. Big week for fundings here. We look at uh, big tech cybersecurity funding, the Facebooks and the Microsofts and the Apples. Uh, we look at their funding and acquisitions. Rumor mill goes nuts over a Cisco Splunk deal. That's probably not going to happen. Why are cybersecurity asset management startups so hot right now? We've got some co-hosts that could possibly tell us. New products, unhelpful legislation, a major acquisition, a few squirrel stories, all that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Workloads protected by VMware are the safest workloads in the multi-cloud. Private cloud, public cloud, any cloud. Stronger with distributed protection to the API and everything east-west, inside, and cross-cloud. Stronger with three layers of detection, trusting nothing and seeing everything, even the best hidden bad actors. Stronger with an SE Labs AAA certified advanced NDR that brings the multi-cloud together for the win. You've got workloads, we've got security. VMware security, simply stronger. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash VMware to learn more. Imagine this scenario. You're out of the office unexpectedly and a colleague pings you because they need access to some system you have credentials for. Now my listeners would never send passwords over email or Slack. But what about your coworkers? How many organizations out there are sending logins back and forth in plain text? Worse yet, how many just store all of their logins on a shared spreadsheet? Keeper Security's password management platform locks down logins, payment cards, and more in a patented zero-knowledge encrypted vault. Sign up for a Keeper free trial today. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Keeper. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly and happy Pluto Day. More on that later. This is episode 261, recorded on Thursday, February 17th, 2022. I'm your host, Adrian Sanabria, and joining me today is Mr. Tyler Shields. How are you, Tyler? Good, good. I am your co-host, Tyler Shields, joining you today. So, uh, yeah, I'm doing well. Just another day in paradise, Adrian. How do you feel about Pluto? Uh, that is a, a non-planet, so I really am kind of uh, anti-Pluto. I, I say get rid of it. Oh, man. I I love that you take that role. I love that you you just own that role. Dude, also joining it. me today. I, it is what it is. I'm, why am I gonna Why am I gonna fight it? Not gonna fight it. Pluto is not a planet. Nobody can disagree. Also joining me today is Katie Teitler. Are you gonna take the uh, the other side of that, Katie, or are you gonna agree with Tyler? Not a planet. I prefer Goofy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well played. Uh, the the uh, best position is not to play at all, huh? 
Probably so, in this case, because we have really, we have much more important things to get to. We do, we do. But um, <laughs> I am going to sideline us for a little bit before we get started with our first interview. Uh, apparently, Pluto Day is tomorrow, or as uh, some very salty folks say, Pluto Planet Day is is tomorrow. But we're recording today, so everybody's just going to have to deal with uh, with us uh, talking about it today. Uh, the other option was National Cabbage Day, and Pluto just seemed more interesting to talk about than than cabbage. So, Pluto was discovered 92 years ago by Mr. Tombaugh at Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. And for 76 years, school children had to memorize it as one of the nine planets using some silly mnemonic like my very educated mother just served us nine pizzas and then solar system homewrecker mike brown had the nerve to discover many more large objects in the solar system uh leading them to a dilemma you know do we make the the kids memorize more uh planets or do we demote pluto to a dwarf planet so the uh <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure most of us remember all the all the uh, outrage about this. The California State Assembly called the IAU decision a scientific heresy, and the New York or the New Mexico House of Representatives passed a resolution in honor of Tombaugh. He was a longtime New Mexico resident to declare a Pluto Planet Day, and even in 2006, Pluto was voted Word of the Year, meaning to demote or devalue someone or something. And if you're interested in more Pluto drama, I'm not making this up. You can pick up Mike Brown's best-selling book, How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. <laughs> wow, that's, that's right some is that? dedication there to, to kill a planet. So, Adrian, yeah, I have a quick question. I have a quick question. Of, was, was the planet founder still alive when they demoted it? And how do you no. feel if you're the guy that, hey, I discovered that planet and X number of years later, I don't get to claim it anymore. How bad does that guy feel? Right. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting to hear if he if he would agree or not. But uh, no, I, I I'm actually not a hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure uh, he he was gone by the time that happened. Wow. He he made the discovery. Yeah, the, yeah. This happened uh, seventy six years later, or something like that. Yeah, he's probably pretty gone. Yeah, pre pretty sure he had passed by then. <laughs> so it's a posthumous kick in the ass <laughs> yeah right which is right. just really rude like just give the guy his claim to fame yeah still a cool extrasolar object uh still cool enough to have a very expensive spacecraft with nice cameras do a flyby of it and we got some very nice pictures of pluto a couple years ago so um, and no other planet or non-planet has its own day. So in the mm -hmm. end, who wins? And I think he would appreciate the outpouring of love uh, from various communities at, at the demotion. So, yeah. All right, we've got one announcement here. Don't miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone. You can also join our mailing list, Discord server, and follow us on social media and our streaming platforms, which now includes Twitch. We get a bunch of people on Twitch. I think more than YouTube when we're live. Uh, when we're live, sometimes these days. Um, all right. So today's first interview, uh, we're going to be talking about a product, uh, both a commercial and free product called Zero Patch. 
Uh, we're excited to have Mitya Kolshek, uh, founder and CEO at Across Security with us today. Welcome, Mitya. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I've been a fan of uh, Zero Patch for a while. And oh. Mitya, I think it would be good to kind of get a history, uh, you know, be because I, I've introduced Zero Patch here, but I've introduced you as the CEO of Across. So it might be good to get a history of uh, what Across does and how you came to build uh, this tool. Okay. So uh, Across is a small security company in Slovenia uh, that has uh, that started doing business in information security in 1999. So uh, it's a small team of eight people, but we do pretty interesting stuff. And uh, we started by providing, you know, the application security assessments and penetration testing, that old school penetration testing where, where someone hires you to try to break into their networks without any prior knowledge. So you, you, do, you exploit some vulnerabilities and show what can be done. Uh, it's very interesting at, uh, at first and after, well, 15 years, it becomes not so interesting anymore because you see that you're still using the same techniques that nothing really changes and it's becoming really a, like a routine. Uh, and you, you start, start to wonder why things aren't getting any harder and you, you get to read all the, about all the other you know, actual break-ins that happen to uh, organizations worldwide. And you see that the same thing is happening to them uh, uh, the, th the same thing that you are doing. Um, and, um, you know, we, we said, okay, uh, it, perhaps it's time for us to, to, you know, turn the tables and, and uh, go on the defense here with all the experience that we had uh, in breaking in. So what could actually stop or, or uh, at least uh, uh, make job significantly harder for an attacker like us and uh, talking to admins who um, whose networks we broke into uh, really just brought up the the same point over and over again which was they uh, they were afraid or reluctant to really quickly apply uh, official patches if even if they were available so when you look from uh, uh, at the vendor's perspective uh, when they uh, know about a vulnerability and they uh, they create a patch for it and make that patch available for everyone, that's really the end of the story for them. So it's uh, it's up to users now to to apply those patches. Um, but uh, if you've ever talked to any admins, you'll know that they don't just do that because too many times that broke something in production and and it's really not nice to be the one who broke production. Uh, so right. uh, as a result, most organizations have uh, some, uh, well, pretty lengthy processes of, of testing these official updates uh, on some testing machines. And once uh, they're ready to, to deploy them, then they uh, actually do. But in the meantime, you know, uh, attackers can find free, mostly vulnerability information on the internet, which is what we did as penetration testers. We never had to find a zero day or, or purchase one. We just had to go to all the forums and, uh, and wherever that vulnerability information was 
was published these days you would go on on twitter and and just take the vulnerability uh, uh take something that that has just been patched but you can be pretty sure that all the machines in your target network have not been uh have not been patched yet so the patch is available and you, you take that exploit or proof of concept and turn it into something that works with with whatever uh remote administration tool you're using or or whatever phishing tool you're using whatever uh, and you and just mutate it to the point where virus total doesn't doesn't recognize it anymore so that's basically what we did over and over again and um so so the problem was uh obviously applying of of patches so patches were there but were not being applied uh, and uh, we said okay can we find a solution can we find uh, some way to to make uh, vulnerabilities go away fast but with uh, less risk uh, and uh, well the idea basically was what we do now it's called zero patch it's called micro patching um, where everything happens in memory and uh, you apply very tiny pieces of code uh, to correct the vulnerability. Uh, there's very little risk of breaking something because the change is really as small as, as it can be. Uh, and you don't have to restart the computer or, 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 or again restart it if, if you want to unapply the patch. So that's really how it started. It, it really was, came out of frustration uh, so uh, we are now on on the defense. So we came from the offense, and with all the, the knowledge that we got there, and uh, we're now playing for the other for the other side. Yeah, and I, I I think that's a very common narrative that you hear from anyone who's been doing any kind of offensive security pen testing for a while. Is is you know it's it's fun at first, but then it gets kind of depressing. You know, it's like you know I remember exactly. in one case it was. Uh, we had a, a client that was a children's hospital, you know, and year five, like, you know, the domain admin accounts that were created on year one were still there. Like nothing was fixed. It's like, what, why are we even doing this? This is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not uh, fun anymore. It's uh, what, what can we do to help you? Right. Yeah, uh, I know. I know. And you, you would hope that, you know, with all these next generation tools, uh, I'm not saying they're useless. Um, uh, there's just so much to cover uh, when you're yeah. trying to protect an environment, um, and, and and I don't know. It's it's so it, it's very frustrating. Whatever you do, it's never enough. Uh, but I think we we wanted to focus on the on the single point uh, where uh, where the failure was very obvious and uh, it where it seem, seemed like a, a fixed problem for vendors. So uh, vendors basically cannot do much more than provide you with, uh, with a fix, right? Uh, so it's kind mm -hmm. of your fault if you don't apply it, but it, it's not really, uh, that's not really true because if, if it's risky to apply it, then, uh, then it's not really your fault. So it's, um, it's not black and white, uh, but it's certainly part of the problem that we wanted to address. And it, it's uh, I've I've noticed a trend. It's it's usually when folks with offensive security background with pen testing backgrounds build defensive tools. Uh, they're they're worth checking out. They're pretty interesting. So you know, just thinking of uh, Haroon Mir with uh, Thinks Canary. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. With HD Moore uh, building building Rumble now. Yeah, I know you're you're okay. a big Canary fan, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I am. I am. That I think I think that's one of the most. Uh, uh, 
the simplest and, and most impressive and probably impactful products if you really want to, uh, you know, do something about uh, something tangible about uh, uh, protecting your network. Because if from the, from the attacker's point of view, if someone, if, if our customers were to use a Thingst, um, it would be probably, well, very hard for us. Uh, it really depends on who would be mm -hmm. listening on the other end, but not just not knowing where you can step uh, and, and, you know, you can put those canaries uh, uh, in, in very good places. So yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a complete fan of, of things. Yeah. Yeah. I used to work there and, and, um, do a POC of one of those right before you have a pen test. It's the easiest way to sell it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So you built an endpoint security product, basically. So this is yes. um, zero patch is something you would install on your endpoints. Uh, I love that you have a free version because it lets me use it, and uh, mm -hmm. and I, I used I've been using it uh, for several years now across my machines. And oh, um, yeah, yeah, I really didn't. I genuinely didn't know that. I just <laughs> I, you said you were a fan. I didn't know you were using. it. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I use it in, in addition to usually my uh, my setup is Windows Defender and and I throw Zero Patch on there in addition, and um, yeah, I mean at first it was just trying it out, you know, but uh, you know then I did a, a bit of testing against it and it, it's it's light enough that you know I I, I never notice it there, as opposed to uh, kind of recently I did some XDR testing and and. Yeah, those agents, EDR agents, are are at the other end of the spectrum. I think uh, when it comes to performance impact, or they yeah, can that, be. That at least. Our, I know they're our, configurable. Our goal was, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, our goal was always uh, to to uh, not be in the way because uh, patching seems to be very much in the way of you doing your business with all the mm -hmm. restarts and and all the the problems that that fairly regularly occur. And uh, uh, we want it to be the exact opposite, you know, uh, to apply the patch and ideally not even know about it. So forget about it uh, and, and certainly not, not uh, uh, consume the resources and, and make, you, make you regret what you're doing. So, uh, yeah, right. uh, that was really always our, our plan. And that, that's, why we, that's why we're using, you know, we, we didn't want to do to have to install any dependencies like .NET Framework or, or anything like that. So uh, we get a lot of questions um, about that from, from users, and they're very happy they don't have to install anything else because everything's hogging down your computer. You, you just want to use it and, and forget yeah. about patching. So what, what are the main differences between the free version and the enterprise version? Uh, it's it's mostly oh two things it's uh, in in the patches that you get because uh, uh, of course we write patches uh, to uh, to uh, but this is a business model right so you write patches and you and you sell them but we decided to uh, to give zero day patches for free to everyone mm. so if you if you want for instance to keep using Windows Server 2008 R2, uh, and you don't have official patches anymore, you can use zero patch to keep this product secure. But if zero day comes out, uh, like uh, in, in the past few months, we had a, a number of zero days 
coming out uh, and we wrote patches for them. Those, all of those patches were free. And that's just our decision. So uh, as long as you, you don't have any alternative, uh, we don't want you to, to have to pay for your security. But once, uh, once the vendor provides uh, their own official patch, uh, then the patch, our patch becomes, um, well, part of pro or enterprise. And uh, the and other so difference is in, in some of the, some of the features that that you get with the enterprise license. Right. I assume you get uh, a console that they report back to for managing all, all your endpoints. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's that's what you get. You you get central management for free endpoints, um, and you can put computers in groups, stuff like that. The the, the usual stuff. We, we want to still keep things simple uh, because we think patching should not be uh, well should not take a lot of your time. Uh, it should be very easy to, to understand what you're doing and, and difficult to, to make a mistake or misconfigure something. Because, uh, you know, if, if it happens, if we make it easy for you to, to misconfigure um, your agents and uh, end up with patches not being applied, then we haven't provided any value. So we need to keep things simple. Yeah. Any questions, uh, Katie or, or Tyler? Give you a chance to, to talk here. You know the um, the the whole patching side of side of the equation has always been a difficult solution, and it's interesting that you came to it from a from background of penetration testing, right? That you came to it from the vantage point of a breaker turned yeah. uh, turned fixer. Why? Can you help me understand a little bit about the path from pen testing to patching? Meaning, like a lot of the times, I'm a former I'm a former breaker uh, myself, mm -hmm. and a lot of the times it was external systems, external facing systems. Yet you you focused your company on kind of the internal, more endpoint centric. Was there a particular reason you chose that? Uh, is it because the pain point was greater, easier to fix? What what was the idea behind that? Uh, well, maybe the endpoint. Uh, we need to make sure it it also includes servers, which could be uh, you know accessible from from uh, an external attacker uh, so um, as a as pen testers we were uh, we were doing well two things right uh, either attacking servers or users using uh, workstations and mostly windows because uh, zero patch only works on windows um, that was a, a decision uh, that we made just to to make uh, to, to limit ourselves to to one platform that is the major uh, entering point for attacks, uh, not not just for ours. I mean, you do have attacks that go through other systems as well, but uh, it is Windows only. And um, the maybe the the missing part of of this equation is the other service that we were and still are uh, uh, offering which is um, application security assessments. So uh, looking for vulnerabilities in our customers' systems, our customers' uh, products, and uh, helping them patch these uh, vulnerabilities. So we also, that service also gave us uh, a lot of uh, experience in, in uh, patching and thinking about um, efficient patching of uh, found vulnerabilities. So we kind of were, I think lucky to have all of these components just ready on the table. So we just mixed them together and, and added uh, this additional idea to create this service. 
Gotcha. So you just mixed them together, added a, a little splash of water, and off, off you went. You grew a company. Yes, because we need, I, I mean, Zero Patch is a service provided by our company, uh, but uh, I, I need to make, uh, to make it clear that we did not really invent anything uh, because uh, whatever we're doing, we're patching in memory. Uh, so hot patching has been, has been around for a very long time before we started in InfoSec. Uh, and also, there, there were uh, there was a time in um, I think about in 2009 or, or even earlier when um, Microsoft uh, had a lot of uh, zero days out, and uh, the, their their patching was not at the level that it is today, because I have to say today they're very good at it, mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, we had companies like Determina and EI and uh, several others. Uh, just experimenting with third-party patching. So uh, they were kind of seeing the the need for that, uh, but none of them actually then uh, turned turned that into uh, a commercial service. So what we did was was actually do that and create a service that now anyone can use. Yeah, and hot patching, you're right. Hot patching, you know, is is not like, you know, invented in the last 12 months, right? This is a no, bit of an no. old, older concept, it's, but it's an old what idea. you did is yeah. you commercialized it, right? You commercialized top yeah. patching. Did you run into um, a lot of situations where people would simply say, look, hot patching is too dangerous for us. It's too risky for us. We're afraid of downtime on these particular suites of endpoints. And if you run into that, how did, uh, how did you guys manage that as a business? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, we had uh, all sorts of responses to to the idea of of hot patching. Uh, some people said, "Okay, this is much better than what we have now because we don't have to restart the computer to apply the patch." Uh, and on the other side of the spectrum, we have people who say, who instinctively say, "A hot patching. This sounds like something that malware would be doing. Uh, we don't like the idea." So they are harder to convince. So you basically have to um, have to uh, explain what you do, and uh, it helps a lot to have uh, our level of transparency because we publish the source code of our patches. Our patches are really small, so anyone can uh, anyone with uh, a bit of knowledge in assembly language, and uh, uh, of course in reverse engineering as well, because you you need to know. Uh, to understand the context where the patch is going to be applied, but you can you can understand what the patch is doing, uh, which is uh, in contrast to uh, what most all other patches in the world uh, look like. They are just huge uh, binaries um, that contain the corrected code, but really it's it's humanly impossible to review an entire DLL that you get every month from from Microsoft or Adobe. So this level of transparency really helps um, our users understand what we're doing and how we're doing it. And uh, just knowing that once you apply a patch, if, uh, if, it's, if it's doing something wrong, uh, it's just as easy to unapply it. You don't have to. It's to, it's a matter of of seconds, basically, to unapply the patch. Yep, all, all without reboots, right? That's the that's yeah. the key 
key bit there. Yeah, that's a key. So, so whoever wants uh, uh, uptime, um, they really like the idea of not having to reboot. Yeah, yeah. Mitya, where can people find out more about Zero Patch and Acros? Oh, at zeropatch.com, obviously. Uh, that's the best thing. But uh, if you want to talk to us um, or, or exchange email, uh, you will find all the all the contact information on that page. All right. And that's number zero, not zero spelled out, correct? That's number zero. Yes, yes. Yeah. We, we do see people. I mean, it was a... Um, Did you buy both? Do you have both domains? No, actually, we tried to. Uh, someone... Uh, beat us to it and then try to sell it to us for a very large sum. And we said, no, <laughs> that's evil. That's, that's awful. Yeah. I, I don't think they did it intentionally to, to, uh, to, to counter, to attack us. I think they had the, the uh, domain before we started. They just uh, oh, okay. also saw an opportunity. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a zero. Mitya, thank you very much for joining us today on Enterprise Security Weekly. Thank you for having me. All right, stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to talk cyber risk intelligence tools with Vikram Asnani from CyberGRX. Endpoint security is designed to protect every device in your fleet, wherever it may be. These days, that can be a lot of different places. Find out how HP Wolf Security uses emerging strategies like application isolation, along with a zero-trust approach and framework to give you a powerful, manageable, usable solution to your growing and increasingly spread out security challenges. Learn how HP Wolf Security can make a difference across your endpoints at securityweekly.com forward slash HP Wolf. Attackers are only getting more proficient, so how can you proactively adapt your cybersecurity strategy? Core Security by Help Systems helps you uncover and prioritize the risks that pose the biggest threat to your organization. Core Impact is a penetration testing tool that safely finds and exploits vulnerabilities using the same techniques as attackers. You can conduct advanced pen tests with ease using certified exploits and automations. Take your engagements to the next level by pairing with Cobalt Strike, a threat emulation tool ideal for adversary simulations and red team operations. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash core security. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Do you have a special guest or topic that you want us to cover in one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review suggestions monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. All right, today's interview is sponsored by CyberGRX. Vikram Asnani joins us today to talk about how cyber risk intelligence tools are changing the third-party cyber risk management game. Vikram is the Senior Director of Solution Architecture at CyberGRX and has 15 years of experience dealing with cloud risks, security strategy, BCP, cloud, a whole bunch of stuff in many different forms. Welcome to the show, Vikram. Thank you. Yeah, so um, so starting out here, typically when we hear the term intelligence, uh, you know, we tend to think of, of threat intelligence. You know, there's a ton of threat intelligence companies out there. The use case for threat intelligence is, is very well understood. So maybe starting off, you know, help us understand what you mean when you say risk intelligence. Uh, that's a great question because when you look at threat intelligence and typically from a military world or a war zone world, you look at, okay, where your enemies are sitting, what height they are sitting, what's the range they have in terms of attacking. Uh, but 
the actual risk of that threat intelligence has to be analyzed based on what impact it will make to you and that's where we could bring the word risk intelligence right threat is just knowing about the threat actors and the vulnerabilities associated with them but the actual impact of those threat will only come in when you analyze it against in a corporate world your business scenarios right how are you using a particular organization or a particular asset and what threat are associated with that asset and if that asset has a business value then we come up and analyze the risk associated and that's where we call it as a risk intelligence because that is what we need to make a decision rather than a threat intelligence do you have like a quick example you could share of of something like that sure i mean uh, uh, take for example the new log 4j vulnerability that came out in december topical uh, everyone's uh, uh, it kind of impacted everyone's christmas and new years last year uh, sure. we got to know about log 4j as a vulnerability we got to know that a lot of our uh, vendor communities are using log 4j uh, and uh, we we started analyzing and reaching out to the vendors and saying okay are you using log 4j what is the impact of that uh, what we got from the business uh, what we got from a threat intelligence perspective what apache log 4j is vulnerable what we didn't get is that what is the risk associated with all my vendors using that and how is going to impact me as an organization because i have relationship with uh, multiple vendors who are using log 4j vulnerability the the analysis of how that additional step is required or what that additional step is required when we are looking at okay log 4j vulnerability is existing in five of these organization five of these organization support uh, me in uh, 20 services that are critical to my business work operations these 20 critical services have control environment which can or cannot mitigate against that vulnerability there is that additional step of analysis that is required that analysis takes lot of time that's analysis is where the incident management team or the risk managers focus lot of their time and energy uh, but you also look at a step before that where they have to coordinate with their vendors they have to coordinate with the third parties to say tell me more about your e environment tell me more about how you log 4j impacts you because if i know about your environment then i can analyze it against my environment and understand what is the overall impact uh, it has to my environment that additional step is what we call as risk intelligence there are there are lo- loads and loads of tools which tell you about okay there is this vulnerability there is this uh, issue that is coming up how that up is applicable to your environment is that's where the additional layer of uh, uh, analytics or uh, tooling comes into play okay okay yeah um Yeah and and how does this um kind of how how does this compare to the more traditional way of doing uh risk management you know and and does this represent a, a pretty big change for people from a shift from how they they typically do this Uh I think so yeah I mean if you look at traditional uh, vendor risk management tools they are either workflow tools who are sending out uh, uh, a similar excel kind of an uh, a spreadsheet to the vendors Uh, and vendors are completing uh, their questionnaire either on an excel platform or on a workflow tool and what they do is they just identify the control failures associated with them applicability of those control failures to a business environment is again an additional step that we need to do 
Similarly, if you look at risk scanning tools, uh, they're just giving us the vulnerability associated with those vendors, right? Again, applicabilities of those vulnerabilities uh, to that uh, particular business is very, very different. And at CyberGRX, we do it a little differently. We combine all of this data together. So we do have control gaps uh, analysis because that is uh, important. We do have threat intelligence because that is important. But what we do is we use that uh, data and analyze it against how a business is using a particular vendor. We have internal uh, mechanisms wherein we ask business to input certain uh, questions in terms of how they use uh, that particular third party. And then based on the data that we collect, we analyze it against how that third party is being used and then put it across uh, different attack frameworks and identify, okay, what is the real risk that is associated with this particular vendor? Right. And every vendor is different, right? If you are collecting uh, uh, control assessments from vendors, you would probably imagine that uh, Microsoft or the big uh, uh, cloud providers would probably give you the SOC 2s and the type 2s. SOC 2s and type 2s are very standard document. Applying that into your environment uh, takes a lot of effort from this uh, organization risk analyst. Uh, and uh, it really depends on that individual risk analyst on his or her capability to analyze it based on which uh, business decision is being made, which kind of uh, puts organization into a gray area. That's where we step in. We not only do the traditional stuff, but we uh, massage that traditional stuff against the, uh, the usage of a third party and, and come up with actual risk intelligence, which can be uh, used to make uh, decisions. Right. So, so it sounds like a. I'm Go sorry. Ahead, I, I had a quick question, if it's okay, Adrian. So, as you said, risk is somewhat relative. Um, yep. Obviously, there are certain external risks that cannot be controlled, but risk yep. based on business use cases, also risk tolerance. Um, that's individual. You know, there, there's also a decision to be made within the organization, and I believe you said that the organizations have the opportunity to adjust their risk tolerances, how they're using tools. So my question is, how easy or hard is this to get up and running? Because if it takes a great deal of input from the client, that takes away from the use, the ease of use perhaps at the same time, however, it makes it more customized to the customer, the individual environment. So what is the process like to get up and running? Uh, great question, Jenny. So we do have uh, mechanisms wherein at the start of it, because we are kind of an exchange platform, we uh, work towards uh, a crowdsourcing usage of third parties. And that allows organizations to say, okay, I have thousands of third parties. I'll accept the, the crowdsourcing mechanism of how that third party is being used. That allows them to uh, prioritize how they want to go about in doing their uh, third party risk management. But once they get the data, then we give this to the business teams or the risk analysts who are actually required to make decisions and ask them to answer simple eight questions, which is around how they use that particular third party. And as they answer those eight questions, it's, it's all Boolean eight questions. As they answer those eight questions, they are able to get a very different output uh, because that is now a further analyzed based on how this business is using that third party. So either you can use a crowdsourcing uh, response uh, or you can tailor it based on how you use it. Uh, 
also think of it in a manner that in today's environment, a particular third party might support in five or six different uh, processes. Each of the process uh, use uh, utilizes different aspect of data, different aspect of how they connect to the network, different aspect of how critical is the business process. Uh, the solution kind of provides you that tailored approach that no, irrespective of you doing just one single assessment on a third party, you still have an option to look at that third party from six different lenses, from six different services that that particular third party is providing. And just by uh, changing the mechanism or answering questions associated with how you are using that particular third party. And that's where uh, we kind of come in. We have Mitra tax framework built all around our system wherein Based on you say, okay, I have, I have, I give access to the data to this particular service for this third party. If you give access to the data, then all the kill chains associated with data protection uh, will kind of uh, emerge. But if you're not giving any data, then if they don't have data at rest encryption controls or if they don't have DLP controls, I don't care because I'm not sharing any data with them. And that's where that intelligence is very, very important because. Uh, we, we have so much of data, uh, identifying signal through that noise is uh, is actually the risk management. And if we are able to do it in a much more precise manner, it's it kind of saves a lot of time and energy and, and uh, costly resources effort in terms of getting to the right uh, problem or attacking the right uh, issue at hand. So, you know, if I just zoom out a little bit here, you know, it sounds like sure. we've got the data coming from uh, your clients and then the third parties of your clients. And then yeah. I, I'm trying to understand uh, where this crowdsource data is coming from and, and uh, um, but like, like what the sources are of that. Is, is it basically that all clients and their third parties data is, is part of that crowdsource data that, that you use to, you know, to kind of understand what's going on? Yeah, I'd probably take a step back just to explain how the exchange work. I think that's important for, for the yeah. audience here is CyberGerics is a two-sided marketplace wherein both uh, customer side of the world as well as the third party side of the world collaborate uh, so that each one of them get benefit of that exchange. Third parties have to complete assessment thousand times because they have thousand customers, right? Uh, and we want to make that process simpler because we want third party to complete an assessment once in our platform and repurpose that assessment by sharing it uh, again and again with thousands of their customers. Similarly, from a customer standpoint, if they come into the platform, they see a third party assessment is already available in the exchange, which means they just need to request uh, that data and third party authorizes that data uh, for a release. Makes their process efficient, which generally takes like 30 to 40 days in actually completing an assessment process. So that amalgamation of a customer input as well as a third party input is what the exchange is all about, right? Uh, we've been very careful in terms of using uh, the data in, in the sense that we're not uh, sharing third party data to anyone. Third party manages and controls uh, their data set. They consent to release to only a customer that they want to release to. Uh, and if they feel that they don't want to release to, uh, to a particular customer, they can't release it. From a crowdsourcing behavior, because we have multiple customers having multiple third parties into the platform, so we have that relationship database. Uh, and we know that how customer is using a particular type of third parties. Uh, we also have the industry uh, analysis in terms of, okay, 
if it is a cloud provider with a particular uh, employee base with a particular revenue range with a particular size or or age of the company um, in a particular sector or in a particular geography this is typically how it is being used so the industry data as well as the crowdsourcing data is combined together and we provide an initial view of how this particular third party is utilized uh, mind you that that view might be different for everyone and and, and customers have an ability to change that view yeah yeah and it, it, it's super interesting how you know how that works you know i i, I love the whole concept here you know, it's it's a noble effort to replace SIGs and spreadsheets, right? Um, but I, I imagine there are some challenges there. You know, there's I, I've never I've never yeah, seen a SIG are, in the same format twice, for example. <laughs> yeah, there are always challenges, but I mean, it the it's the effort is the same for the first time when a third party comes in, right? Whether they are going through an Excel spreadsheet or going through a SIG or coming through our platform, the effort is almost same. But mm -hmm. uh, the benefits of benefit of our platform is much uh, bigger because once they enter into our platform, then it allows them to share that particular assessment multiple times. We have, done, we have gone one step ahead in saying that, okay, if a non-CyberGRS customer is asking you to complete a third-party assessment, you can still say, okay, I'm going to give you a CyberGRS report, no cost to a non-customer uh, non of CyberGRS, no cost to a third party. We are helping third parties not to complete another assessment. Uh, uh, we've also kind of uh, done something called as a framework mapping uh, capability wherein we can convert an assessment that is done on CyberGRX into any of the industry frameworks. That allows third parties' capability to look at their assurance against, say, an IST framework or, or a SIG or, 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 a, or a compliance framework of um, NYDFS uh, or an EPCI DSS. So we allow that capability. Uh, and uh, that that is very, very important because Ultimately, third parties are the heartbeat of our exchange, and we want them to be part of the exchange. We want them to come to the platform. Uh, we don't charge it to them. Obviously, there is a big effort cost initially, uh, but we try and help them out in the sense that they don't have to fill another assessment uh, questionnaire uh, again. And that's that's the only uh, effort that is required initially. Right. Um, yeah. So some other questions here, you know, you're talking about log4j, you know, can, can some of this data be used to, you know, help minimize or, or, or maybe even prevent, or, or I, I guess not prevent, but reduce the risk uh, to the next log4j, for example? Uh, yes. I mean, it's about, when there is an incident, it's all about how you are prioritizing your resources in terms of, uh, being one step ahead of your attackers, right? In a in a log four chain instance, what we've seen in the traditional VRM tools, we are say, okay, go and ask these five additional questions uh, from every third party. We feel that is a very inefficient way of doing it because we know the data, right? Uh, from an outside and scanning solutions that is part of the CyberGRX uh, platform, we know which all third parties are hosting log four chain vulnerable posts. So that that's something that we can scan. From an attested control assessments that we had, uh, we know that which all third parties do not have a good control poster against log4j. If we identify that toxic combination of third parties which have a vulnerable log4j host versus third parties who do not have control capabilities account to mitigate against log4j, 
that is my priority list to focus on uh, and and we've we've done this exercise for a lot of our customers in last 2 to 3 months wherein from the list of 300 to 400 vendors we said these are the 10 vendors that you need to focus on so uh, reach out uh, to the security function of these four vendors and get uh, things sorted uh, you don't have to worry about the other 296 or 290 because either they do not have a log for the host or they have good control postures across it one thing i want to also add here is that uh, at at any given point of time you may not have an attested assessments on all of your third part right and uh, if you have like 300 or 1000 third parties then asking 1000 uh, third parties to complete an attested assessment then uh, is possible but it may not uh, be achieved in the like, first 6 months of you using the platform for example and uh, in 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 that scenario if a log forge event happens then you just looking for uh, uh, vulnerable host information because you do not do not have an attested data what cyber grs did uh, last year was we launched a capability which is an industry first uh, which is kind of called as predictive uh, risk intelligence the way we work on predictive risk intelligence is because we have the massive amount of data across the uh, uh, across the exchange we are now able to predict control failures on third parties Uh, and and that's that's a, a really powerful tool because based on the analytics that we done on um, on 10000 plus completed assessments that we had we identified that our prediction is around 85% accurate so so now if we have predictive assessments as well as an attested assessment i have full visibility of control environment across my ecosystem whether it is 100 third parties or 1000 third parties that combined with the the uh, the uh, the scanning information of vulnerable host provides me a full visibility of all vendors who are vulnerable uh, to that particular stuff and then i am i can ask my incident management team or risk management to say okay against those 1000 vendors these are the 20 that are important uh, because either they have vulnerable they both have a vulnerable host as well as an attested control failure or a predictive control failure so let's focus our energies on that yeah yeah no that that's interesting i imagine like the um you, you know that that's kind of what like the security scorecards of the world have been trying mm-hmm. to go after you know i think with varying levels of success you know pre- predicting where where some of these failures might occur yes yeah, so security scorecards of the world are more more from a scanning uh, perspective so they will scan right. your uh, infrastructure perspective we are you've got you've got all the information that they don't have typically right like we have the like, inside information right behind the right. firewall information right uh, we ask for control attestations so uh, third parties uh, provide attestation on their control environments across all the cyber security controls and uh, that's one attested data that we have but based on that attested data and uh range of different uh, data sets that we have we are able to predict uh, data on third parties who are not part of the exchange and for those third parties that is the control uh, things that we are predicting uh, we still have the scanning information from our data partners uh, but that control information is really important because that's the inside the firewall issue that's where uh, most of the breaches kind of happen so an attacker can get inside your network but if you do not have a good control inside your network then obviously they can infiltrate and do massive damages yeah and one last question about the 
you know, I, I imagine the privacy of the data that goes into your system because your 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 product is uh, entirely SaaS, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I imagine that that's a common uh, concern and in, in question there. Yeah, it's it's a common control question, but uh, I mean, it's important to understand that data that we host is of third parties, right? Uh, from a third party perspective, we provide them full vis- uh, capability of allowing which data they can share with their customers, which data they cannot share with their customers. So every time a customer requests for an uh, attested information, uh, a request goes to a third party and third party will evaluate, okay, I do have a contractual relationship, let me approve it. Or no, I don't have any contractual relationship with this uh, customer. I will not approve the release of my data. Uh, And that's an important uh, factor. I mean, it's uh, because we don't want to expose the entire data set as part of the exchange. And and uh, uh, that's uh, something which is inbuilt into the platform. And that's where the privacy uh, aspects kind of come in overall. All right. Um, well, thank you very much, uh, uh, Vikram, for joining uh, Enterprise Security Weekly today. Good stuff. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And make sure you visit securityweekly.com forward slash cybergrx to learn more. And we'll be right back in a few moments with the weekly enterprise news. CyberGRX brings a revolutionary approach to third-party cyber risk management. Using sophisticated data analytics, real-world attack scenarios, and real-time threat intelligence, CyberGRX provides a complete portfolio analysis of a company's third-party ecosystem, helping the world's leading businesses prioritize their risks and make smart decisions. Interested in learning more? Head over to securityweekly.com forward slash CyberGRX and demo the world's biggest third-party exchange. Picture your team being able to map out the external attack surface as it grows and see the same attack vectors as a hacker does. Most tools out there do asset discovery, but stop there. Enter Detectify. It takes an inventory of exposed web assets and automates vulnerability testing for security misconfigurations, expiring subdomains, and risks in third-party software. Here's the cool part. They crowdsource payloads from leading ethical hackers. It finds bugs you actually want to fix and finds them in time. Start a free two-week trial by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash detectify. Go hack yourself. Let's face it, cyber attackers have the advantage. ExtraHop is on a mission to help you take it back. Regain the upper hand with security that can't be undermined, outsmarted, or compromised. When you don't have to choose between protecting your business and moving it forward, that's security uncompromised. See how it works in the full product demo, free online at securityweekly.com forward slash extra hop. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. We have a few webcasts coming up. First, join us March 2nd to learn five things you can do to catch more bad guys. Then join us March 10th for an intro to KQL queries. And I believe that is with Mr. Salazar, yes, who we had on the show not too long ago. And Tyler, Tyler Robinson, who we also had on the show not too long ago. Should be a good one if you want to dig into the the details there. To register for these webcasts, you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash webcasts. Don't forget to check out our library of on-demand webcasts that have been happened in the past uh, recordings at securityweekly.com forward slash on demand. All right. Now for the Enterprise Security Weekly news. If you want to follow along, you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash ESW261. 
for the show notes that we're going to be going through here. So I think um, I think maybe I want to start with the Cisco Splunk rumors. Have you guys been keeping up with that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, keeping up with it as much as uh, one could, I, I suppose, because it's a $20 billion takeover rumor. I mean, that's that's a monstrosity. That that would be the biggest ever. You know, I think the the second biggest uh, was sixteen billion, and that was a the McAfee take private. Now, did you when you say the biggest ever? Do you mean the biggest ever in cyber or the biggest ever in software? in cyber? In cyber, okay. No, gotcha. I mean that Microsoft Activision thing was. <laughs> oh yeah, that was sixteen right there, right? <clears throat> Uh, 69 or 70 or something like that. 68. Oh, was it that big? Holy smokes. Yeah. I couldn't remember. That was a monster. It was a monster. Um, so yeah, yeah so big, biggest in cyber. Yeah, no, I think that's a super interesting, um, potential takeover offer because Splunk is kind of beat down. They've been beat down like a lot of the rest of the high growth stocks. Cisco for whatever reason, you know, got beat down a little bit, but certainly maintained their, um, their their bigger position in the market and you know being as big as they are that makes sense and i think it's a gap you know cisco might have within their uh cloud-centric or cyber-centric product portfolio is to understand events that are happening in real time and that's where splunk shines so i think you know from a um a good fit vantage point i think i think it makes a lot of sense on the back of Doug Merritt stepping down in uh, in November from Splunk, you know they're probably lost from a leadership perspective and and not really knowing which direction is north at the moment. So it makes a natural, um, you know, made a, makes a natural target. But I think, like you said in the in the opener, um, this just in from the things that will likely never happen. Yeah. So so some numbers to throw around with that. Um, Cisco, I unless I'm missing something in their portfolio, hasn't really had anything sim like since the the Cisco monitoring analysis and response system, which people probably remember as Mars. Uh, end of sale for that was in 2011. End of support was in 2016. It's a lot of life support for that thing. I think shows how much, <laughs> uh, you know, how how hard a time people have uh, moving away from a from a sim. And um, Splunk is uh, is pretty big. It would basically double uh, Cisco's security revenue. I think security uh, Cisco's security business itself is somewhere just shy of three billion, and I think Splunk is also a little shy of uh, three billion. So it's uh, it, it'd be huge for their bottom line. You know, adding that revenue that those customers, which you know, then they could sell other stuff to, and. Uh, I think something like 8,000 employees. So really, really big company. And uh, also in the rumor mill, apparently Datadog and Sumo Logic said no. And so, you know, the fact that that rumor is out there might just be that they're they're looking for something, you know, and it doesn't have to be Splunk, you know, and we've now seen comments. Uh, you know, I think there was a, a Splunk... Uh, uh, investor call yesterday where they they basically said, yeah, no, we're considering lots of options, you know, and they they kind of played down the the Splunk angle. Yeah, I mean they have to, they have to, they can't let they can't let that information leak. If it is real, they they have to, you know, simply for SEC reasons, not not say anything right. more about it. So who knows? We'll we'll know, you know, and actually we may never know if uh, if it falls apart. You just we'll never hear it again, and it'll just kind of fade away into the ether. Sure. 
Yeah, there was a Cisco FireEye rumor years ago. I remember seeing that on uh, uh, on on it wasn't a security site. It was a rumor on uh, like Alpha. Uh, what is the name of that? Seeking uh, Alpha. Seeking Alpha. Yeah. Yeah. And we we're like, what? Like, there's no <laughs> like that's a hundred percent overlap right there. Just about didn't make a whole lot of sense. And and yeah, those happen, things fall so. apart. They're never they're never done until they're completely you know until the money's in the bank. Not even when they're signed. They're never done until the money's in the bank. So you never you never want to count that money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Katie, were you trying to say, so, say something earlier? Sammy, I'm going to tag on what Tyler said about, you know, we may nev- never know, but it is interesting if it's true that Cisco would go after Splunk. Yes, they're a market leader. They're entrenched in so many companies, but there, there have also been a lot of customers who aren't that happy with the fact that they almost can't move away from Splunk. It's almost like Mm -hmm. their hands are tied because moving away from Splunk is such a huge lift. So if this is true, it's interesting to me that Cisco will be looking at that versus something that's maybe a little more nimble. Yeah, it's a a sticky product for sure. I I think any SIM is, you know, but especially if you've built applications uh, in Splunk, uh, and, and there's certainly vendors out there, you know, that that are aiming to be, you know, D- Devo for the first, uh, you know, good five years of uh, Devo. Their pitch was, you know, one tenth the the cost of Splunk, you know, for like eighty percent of the the value. So um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see where this goes. I mean, regardless, you know, I think we can all agree that Cisco probably needs a sim in its in its lineup. And, uh, you know, if it's one that would double their security business revenue overnight, they'd probably be pretty happy with that. All right. So since we're talking about acquisitions, Akamai is acquiring Linode, which Linode, I guess you can think of it as public cloud, though we didn't think of it like that uh, back in the day because it, it, it was around before AWS. I, th- I think Linode was founded in 2003 and it was just, uh, you know, virtual Linux systems. Like it was, it was very simple, very straightforward. If you needed, uh, you know, a, a, somebody else to run a virtual Linux box for you, you know, virtual private server VPS, I think was uh, the term that was around back then. Um, that was an easy place to go. Super easy to spin one up. You know, it was fairly cheap. I, I had one for a couple of years. I think I paid mm. twenty bucks a month or something like that for it. And now I'm 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 not sure about the rationale for Akamai to pick them up, though. It's the oldest cloud company you've never heard of. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of geeks have heard of it. Like they they advertised on like Slashdot and a lot of you know very geeky places, but. It wasn't something like I always used it for playing around with stuff. Like I never really used it for anything production related. I'm not sure if that was just me. But a yeah, uh, hundred million ARR is, is nothing to sneeze at. No, it's bootstrapped. And you actually said that. I swear to God, I wasn't reading it when you said that. And I just looked at my other screen. I didn't mean to plagiarize <laughs> you. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. That's why I put the notes out there. <laughs> this Go this ahead, one's Tyler. weird to me. I don't, I don't get it. There's no question. The rationale, you know, right? Like there's yeah, SMB, I mean, SMB cloud, but Akamai I mean, unless, is not SMB unless, focused. 
unless Akamai's AWS charges and reliance upon a single cloud provider or potentially single cloud provider is hurting them to the point where like if if Amazon goes down for one, you know in a region or whatever it kills off Akamai they look bad to their customers they're trying to diversify you know the the site reliability and engineering side of the business maybe it's cheaper to spend 900 million and buy one of these companies than it is to build it from scratch I mean it certainly seems like a good deal for 900 million on on both sides I mean, but, if they're uh, selling the product, sure. If they're doing a build versus buy and they simply bought it just so they didn't have to build it, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's kind of what I'm thinking here is is that maybe this is a building block for something. That's, that, that's my best guess. A different one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I- interesting that, you know, it, it never occurred to me that they were bootstrapped, that they had never taken funding, but, um, you know, VC funding probably wasn't available for something like this back in 2003 just a year or two after the you know the internet bubble burst um yeah yeah so all i gotta uh, say is could you imagine building a business for 20 years in today's high growth model like in the burnout rate that people like us have 20 years mm -hmm. i would have never ever made it that guy that company that that founder is amazing to have lost lasted 20 years without jumping off a of, uh, top of a building. Yeah, and I mean, in those 20 years, they've been profitable the whole time. So he's he's been pocketing stuff here. He didn't have to share any any ownership. Good for him. It, he's set for, he's he's, set for he's a little while. Yeah, I'm I'm sure it's like a 18 month uh, <laughs> retention uh, clause in there, and then he's 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 retired. He's he's going to go to go to the yep. islands. <laughs> Good on him. All right, so on to the funding. Uh, Tyler, I wanted to get your your thoughts on this Securonix uh, round. Mm. <laughs> mm. How is this? How, why why are they not using the word acquisition here? I'm confused because they're, the last wow. round they raised was twenty four million dollars. Yeah, I mean, <coughs> excuse me. Today's. Uh, you know, today's rationale, I think, is pretty clear. You know, your A round is whatever, about 20 million. Your B round's an additional 24 million. And then your C round is a billion. That's that's how money is raised today. And that's just a very straightforward, linear, uh, a line that goes straight up, of course, but linear raise model. So, no, I'm not surprised. No, I'm kidding. Totally. This is the most ridiculous <laughs> thing I've ever I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for the punchline. <laughs> the most ridiculous. How do you go from 50 million total raised to a billion in one jump? What did you it do to the to business in that period of time? Like, how how is that not the the full value of that business? I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, I honestly am not exactly sure how that goes down. The only thing, maybe that, that I mean, it is Vista, right? So Vista is a private equity firm that that typically does acquisitions. They also have venture capital divisions and chunks like that, and they raise funds in a in a traditional VC methodology. Um, but maybe there's some kind of clause set up with, you know, a controlling interest, maybe not a financial control, but a, a voting control at the board that makes it a non-acquisition, meaning they might have, they might own it all financially or a huge chunk of it financially, but at the end of the day, maybe somebody else owns it from a voting control standpoint. I don't know. So look at it from this perspective, you know, what kind of investments does Vista usually do? Right. Yeah, you know, it's usually yeah, it's usually acquisitions, squeeze blood from the turnip. That's what they de they tend to do. 
I think that's Occam's razor here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. If it looks like a duck and it, it sounds like a duck, they raised a million bucks. I don't know. <laughs> a billion. Billion. Sorry. Off. Off. Yeah, zero. Yeah. What's a zero amongst friends, Adrian? Really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so salt security, we've got yet another unicorn here. So, uh, you know, on the one side, Securonix apparently ate a unicorn and salt security right, uh, became one. <laughs> ate a unicorn. That's that's pretty impressive. I mean, that's what that I mean, saying it's a raise and not an acquisition or not a valuation. Uh, they, they ate a unicorn. They did. No, you're, you're definitely not wrong. It's just when you say it out loud, it sounds very funny. But um, salt, I've always liked salt. Uh, First of all, I like salt a lot on my food, but I like the company and the market that they play into. I'm, I'm a big fan of the growth of the API um, security requirement as we move forward into the cloud and the transition that's occurring into the cloud. So um, I, I actually think this is this is a unicorn that, uh, of all the unicorns we've seen in the last six, six to 12 months, this one probably makes m- more sense. It's probably like a natural fit unicorn because they've been around for a while too. They've been around for a while. It's an important attack vector to secure good company, stable. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence with uh, API security. I'm not sure how big that market might be. And we, we've got no name and uh, quite a few others in there. You know, some of the there's some more mainstream security vendors that are starting to introduce API security security products as well. You know, see some. Uh, IAM vendors, some uh, identity vendors jumping into that space, some cloud vendors uh, jumping into that space. So, yeah, I'm interested to see what happens with that market. I agree. I don't think it's going to be a a standalone category for a long time. I think most of these companies will get eaten up or merged in some fashion. The market will consolidate in the next couple of years. Um, but like Tyler, I'm kind of a big fan of, of the market because it's something that hasn't gotten nearly as much attention as, you know, IAM or Endpoint or, you know, one of the other markets that is pretty much here to stay. Yeah. Yeah. The easy button way that the reason, like I I could actually expand a lot on an investment thesis for API security and why I like it, but the, the kind of TLDR reason why I think it's a great market to, um, to be growing a business in or investing in um, is basically fundamentally if if the network perimeter really doesn't exist anymore, what do we have left? We have communication communication paths between components, right? Between applications, between components, and you have to secure the path. And really, as we we take our applications, put them in the cloud, and break them into from one app to say fifty cloud native apps and you know native uh, cloud native designs apps in the cloud all of those things have to intercommunicate and crosstalk and i think that's a fundamental shift that's occurring and security of those api points those communication paths is where security has to go to properly secure that the cloud native application arena so i'm actually um pretty excited about this market as a whole yeah i mean i think it's almost table stakes for your security tool to, or even your, your your IT ops tool to integrate with other things. Because if you're a standalone tool that can't talk to another tool, you're dead in the water. So 
you know, so it's something that the the internal communication is really important. So, yeah, I'm not saying anything new. Sorry, I'm not adding anything of value here. Just sort of <laughs> parroting Tyler today. <laughs> That's perfectly okay. Yeah, so we've got a um, bunch of other fundings here. We didn't have much last week, so this week is kind of making up for next week. We've got a couple of Series A here. Uh, we've got a Series A from Legit Security, Vicarious, and Kalamu. Um, legit, the names are getting I, I, out there. The names are getting yeah, out they there. Are. They are. Um, legit is um, – <laughs> oh, the puns. <laughs> The puns people legit, are gonna have. You fun. got legit. You got no name. Yeah. You got. There was another one recently that's that kind of caught me by surprise. Oh, remember, uh, the the redacted one. Redacted. Yeah, redacted. It, that's the one. one. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. Yeah. Well, I guess we're. Just I remember I read a whole press release words. and I was like, "Well, what's the name of the company?" <laughs> and then, and I had that head slapping moment where I was like, "Oh my god, they didn't." <laughs> they did. They did. Um, they did. Yeah, you know, and it's funny. All of these are A's, right? Everything I think everything you just mentioned is yep. an A round. It and is, yeah. what's really interesting is they range from 16 to 26 and a half million for A's. The new A's, man, they're they're just absolutely absolutely huge. They're crazy. But then you got the little guy here, the um, uh, permit.io. Um, actually, I got an introduction to them. Yeah, that, that's getting into the seeds, I think, right? Yeah. Uh, I believe that might be a seed. Yeah, but I get an introduction to those guys. I have a briefing coming up here in the next week or two. So I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit more about the permissions-based stuff that they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely some interesting stuff in the in the seeds here. Um, Vicarious is kind of competing with like Vulcan Cyber in, in, in that space with the uh, both vulnerability prioritization and uh, actually remediating it, you know, helping with the the patch process. I don't know much about um, legit or Kalamu, except what they they say in the titles here. I have a chance to dig super deep into these, but supply chain's a big thing. I don't know if legit is uh, you know aiming to be another like automate your s bomb type. Uh, um, approach that's that's what it kind of sounds like automatically maps all the tools and processes in the enterprise software system yeah, yeah and i so. think it does automated code repository scanning as well i could be wrong but but i think i read that somewhere as well yep but yeah some of these seed uh um some of these seeds would, look, uh, uh, interesting yeah no i definitely have to mention the guys and gals over at uh uh KSOC. Uh, which includes some uh, mm -hmm. former um, folks from Signal Sciences are involved in that, uh, both on Angel side as well as, um, as as founding team. But they're doing Kubernetes security stuff, um, and they actually raised six million. I think they, yeah, they were led by Four Hundred Six Ventures, um, which is uh, Vericode's original original founding. So I got to make sure they get their plug here because I definitely have a yeah. lot of overlap with those teams. So. They were actually my favorite name. Like at first I was like, man, that's a lazy name, you know? And then I thought, well, <laughs> it's, it's catchy. I'm never going to forget it. It describes exactly what it does. It's kind of perfect. You know, so yeah, KSOC, yeah. Kubernetes uh, Security Operations Center. All right. <laughs> like I know it, I already know what the pitch is. Gets the job done. Pitch is over. You don't need to explain yourself. Let's go. Just buy the product. Yep. And, uh, yeah, some some experienced folks behind it. So yeah, that that'll be an interesting one to watch. 
Yeah, that one too is um, managing microservice architectures using Kubernetes and security around those types of things. It really connects well with the same thesis I was just getting into about uh, APIs and AP, the growth of APIs in the cloud. That is all along that same storyline, right? As we take the applications and break them apart into multi you know, microservices, security of that changes drastically. And so uh, I think this is another interesting one as well. Yeah. Yeah, so um, yeah, we're gonna have to skip some of these. I, I didn't get a chance to dig super deep into into some of these. Uh, a lot of them are doing data security, alert security. Uh, they're well, DLP, right. but they're tra they're trying to use a new acronym: data loss detection and response (DDR), which, as you we all know, spoke. stands for Dance Dance Revolution. So it does. One hundred percent. Yes. And you and I have spoke about uh, our, our opinions on data security multiple times in the past, and and neither one of us have ever seen, at least at least I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I can tell you right now, I've never seen a data security company that actually worked worth a darn. So uh, it's either really ripe for innovation for something to be done well, or we're just going to see a bunch more failures in that space. And I'm not sure which one. Yeah. And then uh, securethings.ai is a... Um, India-based automotive cybersecurity startup, which makes sense. Fourth uh, largest country in terms of automobile production uh, in, in yeah. the world. Uh, Tata Motors is there who owned, uh, I don't know if they still own Land Rover and Jaguar, but they they bought a bunch of stuff from Ford back in the day. Um, yeah. Adrian, if you thought KSOC was lazy, I think this one beats it for laziness. Secure things. Yes, AI. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's... it's um, and it, it doesn't tick all the boxes that KSOC does. So No, it yeah. doesn't. It's just lazy with no actual success rate. It doesn't go, oh, I get it. No, secure all the things. Sounds like a meme from like 2004. That's why they get the smallest seed, Tyler. They have the smallest they, seed, smallest fundraising. They got the to fix their marketing. They got to fix their marketing. They would have easily got $35 million with a better name. Give Tyler a call. <laughs> exactly. I'm for hire. It's not too late. It's it's only seed. You know, I I think something like if I were to guess, I'd say probably a third, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe 20% uh, of some of these startups tend to change their name somewhere around seed or series A. I can, I promise you, I can triple their valuation just with a name change easily. Nice. The power, <laughs> power of proper marketing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, branding has a lot to do with it. Um, so there's this uh, really cool report. I think the link I have in here goes directly to the PDF, which you know might have bypassed a uh, an email collection form. I don't, I don't know. It, it wasn't on purpose. If that was the case, sorry. But don't worry <laughs> about it. It's it's all watermarked, Adrian Sanabra, you know, right across the bottom. So everybody, <laughs> make sure to send it to your friends. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I interesting. Like like. Part of it, I was like, I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure the CB Insights really understands the cybersecurity market, but there's some very interesting stats in here that I found useful. So it basically goes in and analyzes the, yeah, I, I'd heard them called Fang, Fang, uh, but not yeah. Famga. So CB yeah, Insights calls calls Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon. They use the acronym Famga. Um, okay. But interesting, well, they're, uh, they actually, they're, they're spinning it a little bit because they're leaving Netflix and a couple others off. That's why. Right. So they're, they're talking about um, 
and bringing up Netflix is interesting because they're talking about cybersecurity investment and acquisitions from these companies. And the way Netflix invests is is kind of non-traditional. You know, they they don't necessarily um, fund companies as they they they'll use everything. You know, they'll they'll do POCs of everything. They'll give detailed uh, feedback on on why your tool was great, why why your tool sucked. What would you you know what would have to change for Netflix to consider uh, spending money on it more long term? You know, so they're they're very much a partner of a lot of startups. Um, you know, and if you look at it just the way CB Insights looks at it, you know, Netflix wouldn't, you know, you can see why it didn't show up in this list because um, this is more about formal uh, investments from uh, venture arms of Google and Microsoft, for example, and, and, and acquisitions. Yeah, one interesting data point that I found in this report was the 2020 to 2021 growth, right? So um the FAMGA-backed cybersecurity deals in 2020, did they did 19 deals. In 2021, they did 23 deals. So only four additional deals, right? Roughly 20% more. But the total dollar invested went from $549 million to $2.4 billion. So 5x, roughly, mm-hmm. 5x. In, 20, in 20% more deals, they did 5x more dollars. Which is is quite a quite a jump in in financial commitment from the FAMGA group when it comes to uh, doing cybersecurity deals and funding. Yeah, and a billion of that was was five investments. Uh, Orca was three hundred and forty million. At Bay was one hundred eighty five million. Uh, Security Scorecard was one hundred eighty. SNCC was one hundred seventy five. Aqua was one thirty five. Um, so not not hugely like there wasn't one giant one that accounted for that huge jump. It it, it was it was an increase across the board for sure. But one of the yeah, interesting I, things you see here is that, and it's funny that you mentioned Netflix because honestly, Facebook and Apple and to some extent Amazon almost don't even belong in here. You know, because Microsoft and Google, their, their investments and acquisitions just uh, overshadow everything else. Yeah, for sure. And if you look at the dates of those big five acquisition or um, investments that you just mentioned, right, with uh, Aqua, SNCC, Security Score, Scorecard, Ebe, Orca, uh, three of the five of those were March of 21, which means they probably had at least 100% markup on those investments already. To go from mm-hmm. March of 21 to March of 22, for most of these companies, they, they took rounds in in March and then took rounds in again in like October, November. Yeah. And for whatever reason, they didn't uh, count Chronicle. Uh, they didn't include Chronicle with uh, Google's acquisitions, which uh, had me kind of scratching my head. Um, Very interesting. And they included uh, RealFace. Uh, Apple acquired a company called RealFace, which was facial recognition, which I didn't really consider to be like like not even doing the authentication bit of it. So I didn't really consider that cybersecurity. Um Apple and Facebook did no cybersecurity investments at all. They just made uh, uh, a handful of acquisitions. Uh, Facebook made one, Apple made two. So that's why I say they almost don't even belong on this list. Whereas um, Google made 33 investments and Microsoft did 19 investments over, over this time period. So very much uh, leans in, in uh, you know, uh, on, on, those, on those sides for those two companies. Yeah, I definitely um, would recommend would recommend everybody go download this report, especially since you don't have to fill out the paywall. Thanks to Adrian, um, definitely go download the report and take a peek at this because there is a lot of 
really interesting concepts around what helps sell products versus what doesn't, right? Because these guys aren't making cybersecurity acquisitions to really sell cybersecurity products. I mean, some of them are, I guess, Google and Microsoft do. Well. Um, but at the end of the day, isn't a lot of it to secure what they have as well and provide better products for the other things that they're selling? Yeah, so that that's actually a big rationale here is that uh, three of these companies have public clouds and two of them don't. And mm. definitely you saw the biggest investments in cybersecurity coming from uh, the AMGs, <laughs> as I'm calling them, the, the um, Amazon, Microsoft, yep. Googles that have public clouds. And uh, yeah, it makes a whole lot of sense. Like if you look at Amazon alone, um, they've got t- at least 25 native cloud security products, uh, you know, without making acquisitions, you know, a ton of them yep. uh, now. Uh, but to what you're saying, if you look at Microsoft, uh, there are a few notes here, and I, we've noted on this in the past before, Microsoft has a $10 billion cybersecurity business as of 2020, and that was two years ago. Uh, 400,000 cybersecurity customers, and and that $10 billion, that was a $3 billion increase over 2019. They were a $7 billion cybersecurity company there, so uh, somewhere around 40% year-over-year growth there. So, yeah, but I wonder, Adrian, I wonder, is that number a rounding error to Microsoft when it comes to the revenue run, right? Like, I don't know what their revenue rate is without actually taking five minutes here and looking it up, mm-hmm. but that that number could be a rounding error to them. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I don't know. Um, I don't I don't think, I think it's more than a rounding error. Um, you know, I know, uh, yeah, no, we, we, we'd have to... We'd have to look up some numbers, but no, it's a good question. Yeah, so according according to uh, three seconds of Google Foo, so take that for what it's worth. Um, results for September 30th, 2021, revenue was 45 billion, increasing 22%. That's for Microsoft. Total revenue. Yeah. So it's meaningful, but it's certainly not, you know, all the dollars. <laughs> The bit of irony, so Microsoft is talking about promising to spend $20 billion over the next five years to advance security and protect customers, blah, blah, blah. Um, But the irony is Azure just had this wealth of uh, issues, you know, security issues in Azure uh, pointed out to them last year by Wix and Orca and a bunch of these uh, uh, cloud security uh, startups out here. So you yeah. know, it's kind of ironic that they're that they're such a big uh, have such a big security business, you know, but they're just getting getting creamed in terms yeah, of uh, like like some pretty simple mistakes. And and they made some important hires here. Uh, yeah. They're very publicly and transparently, you know, uh, working to to address that issue. Yeah. So I just did an additional two seconds of Google, and I'm going to correct my error. That number that I quoted you of 45 billion. That was the quarter revenue. Oh, so quarter. T- <laughs> yeah. Fiscal year 2021 revenue, it was $168 billion. So their security revenue is a rounding error. Yeah. Yeah. They've been working really hard over the last several years to make some really big strides. Uh, you know, their, their cloud remains you know, behind the AWS, obviously, but... But they've been putting a lot of work, a lot of investment, and yeah, they have made some mistakes. Um, but then again, they're one of the biggest targets in the world because of 
where they have their fingers in pies. So it, when you look at the number of either vulnerabilities or attacks against them, it's almost an unfair competition, if you will, just because they have such a huge target on their back. Um, but I've been impressed over the last couple of years with, with what they're doing and, and how dedicated they at least seem to be to, to growing the business and doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. And just to give you, uh, to complete the story of Google Foo, uh, Nadella said the company generated $15 billion in security revenue in 2021, up 45% from the prior year. So it's 15 billion out of whatever I just said, 160 or whatever I said a minute ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I would imagine a lot of that does come from cloud and and the fact that everybody's working at home, still working at home, still gonna be working at home in 2023. Um, so that probably had quite a bit to do with it, I would imagine. And then all of the complementary tools that surround it. Yep. All yeah, right, I mean, we went down a rat hole off of this off of this report, Dave. Yeah. No, no, it's fine. Yeah, that, that, I had a ton of notes on this. That it was the intent to uh, to spend some time on it. So, yeah, no, no issue there. Um, there's a really good. If you look at story number fourteen, we're not going to dive too deep into it. It's just something that people should go read. But uh, Andy Ellis is going to be doing a lot more writing uh, these days. He's he's going to be doing regular op eds, and th this is a great one where he talks about bad vulnerability metrics you know, and, and why they're bad and why you should feel bad about using them. And I, I love that he provides examples. He actually whipped out Excel and put together, I'm assuming he used Excel, and, and put together some graphs to show, you know, why, why these are, are bad metrics. He, he took different scenarios. He's like, okay, you know, here, here's your metric and now log4j happens. And like, it obviously visually doesn't have the effect you would want it to have. And it takes a, a couple of real world examples like that. It, it's a great read. Um, it's very easy to fall into a trap of of just using the same metrics everybody else uses, and you know everybody just gets used to them. And and you know you, you want metrics that highlight stuff that you do right. You know, and and hundred uh, percent. You know, and, and instead of just uh, just following the numbers, you know the <clears throat> tons of bad metrics out there. So great read. You know, if you're on the defender oh, side, if you got to run could, this stuff can, up the chain, check it out. I can tell you, absolutely tell you stories about crap metrics. Man, I 20 years ago, I was working uh, at the United States Postal Service. I did it for one year, and we had to report metrics. And one of the metrics we reported were the number of attacks we stopped at the firewall. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's classic. Yes. That's classic. And not only that, but the actual metric we reported was not the number of actual attacks, but the number of packets we dropped, as if that has yeah. any meaning to anybody up the food chain. The U.S. Postal Service stopped 20 pentillion attacks last year. <laughs> Absolutely. That's exactly what our numbers looked like. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. How many got through? <laughs> well, we had no idea about that. I mean, that's stuff we didn't know about. <laughs> Right. But the sad thing is for a lot of companies, that kind of metric, quote unquote, um, hasn't changed. We've been talking about this, yeah, for, for almost 20 years. I'm not quite as old as you, Tyler, but. Um, <laughs> not, not even close, Katie, not even close. Um, but yeah, it's you 10 years ago, 15 years ago, used to go to a talks on metrics. 
same kind of thing. You know, hey, don't dive deep into the, you know, how many spam emails? Why are we saying the same things today? I think part of it is that it's hard to get a metric, but part of it is that sort of smoke and mirrors and shrouded in mystery that definitely helps security people keep a stronghold on their jobs. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, not to be too dark and cynical about it, but security has become so mainstream in a lot of respects that it's almost like a threat if more people understand what it means. But we do have to be more transparent about our metrics. But until we get to metrics that actually matter, when it can't just be, hey, we weren't breached today, um, that dynamic's not going to change. We're not going to be taken as seriously as some other business units in the organization because a lot of security teams do still talk in bits and bytes. And, and I don't know, maybe it still has a use. You know, BS metrics uh, might be good if there's some uncomfortable truths uh, you're not prepared to explain to uh, the board or executives. But let's move on. Let's, uh, <laughs> on, on that uh, bombshell. Um, <laughs> Tyler, Katie, why are cybersecurity asset management startups so hot right now? Throwing you a bone with this story here. <laughs> I, I honestly am not sure why you would ask us that. I mean, that seems like a weird question. Random. Katie? I haven't why, thought why? about it at all. <laughs> I don't know. Asset who? All right, cool. <laughs> we can skip this one. Let's move on. <laughs> Hey, wait, 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 wait. I, you missed your I, chance. I, nope, 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 I'm taking it. I take it back. I take it back. Um, no, to, to directly answer your question, I think it, it comes down to some of the points I was making about the API stuff earlier. Um, companies, enterprises, commercial companies, small, mid-sized business, all the way up the food chain, have no idea what their current infrastructure and security systems truly look like at the broadest state. And this is because the tooling has changed. You no longer have a, a, a perimeter that's well-defined that you can draw a circle around and say, here's all my assets. It's all self-contained in this building on this street in this city. And now it's distributed, it's ephemeral, it's worldwide. And you know, if we take the concept of what used to be assets, right? Fundamentally just an endpoint, an IP address, and that's all we cared about, right? We stuck our, our barcode on it and we, that was our asset management system. That's not how it works today. Right, everything is virtual, ephemeral, in the cloud, software derived, software defined, um, and because of that, enterprises have no idea what their true asset sprawl and base looks like. And so, you know, everything from identities to GitHub repos to um, uh, to workloads in the cloud to the traditional endpoints, right? These are all assets that have to be tracked, and it's really creating a market for companies both like Katie's and my company, Jupiter One and Axonius, to really put ourselves into a position to say, here's what that universe looks like, right? Um, and so I think at the end of the day, that's why that's why this market is really getting hot because people don't know what they have. And that's that's the primary value we can provide. And I would just add to it that this is such a foundational capability that hasn't been able to be managed in an easy way before. It's all been managed by siloed tools, disparate data sets. And now, like Tyler said, we have so much ephemerality in our environments 
you can't keep up with any sort of manual process. But it's even about more than just the assets themselves, because it's one thing to have, all right, I have this number of assets, they're these types of assets, they fall into these zones, whatever the case may be. But you also have to correlate data about the hygiene, the sturdy state of them. You can't just say, hey, here are the assets and look at that and leave it at that rather. You have to understand their security state, what kind of risk they pose to the organization, try to look at what you can do to mitigate those risks. And there's no magic bullet. You know, Tyler's company, my company, we we don't have a magic bullet. You can't just say, oh, asset risky, turn it off. That's not what asset management tools are meant to do, but it's meant to highlight the areas of risk and vulnerability so that companies can understand it and make informed decisions. And because the technology has evolved, you know, we were talking about APIs before because the interconnectivity now exists is so easy to do. We have the technological capabilities. And so now we can get back to those basics of understanding at that fundamental level, what do we have? What state is it in? And what can we actually do about it at this point in time? Or what do we need to do to get to a point where we can really mitigate or remediate the problem? Yep. Yep. And and the last thing I'll say on it, because obviously we could dominate this entire show with this conversation just because <laughs> it's what we do for a living. Um, the last thing I'll say on it, I, I love the word foundational that Kitty used, right? It's that's the key word. You can use our tools to build a foundation to your cybersecurity program, literally building your entire cybersecurity program. Because if you think of any cybersecurity function you need from vulnerability management to incident response to, um, you know, to any of them, uh, they all start with knowing what you have and knowing the state of those of those assets, right? They they have to, otherwise you can't you can't secure things. So, uh, really, you can use tools like ours and tools like these asset management companies um, as the foundation for your cybersecurity program. And the final point on that particular article is they misquoted Jupiter One's raise amount. It's not not 19 million. It is 49 million. So we're working on getting that fixed. You don't want to be underrepresented considering the the amounts that are coming in. Well, I mean, look at those Exonius people there right there. It says they bagged 100 million. So, I mean, we got to keep keep up with the Joneses. Which is which isn't exactly accurate either, but yeah, eh, whatever. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> all right. All right. You guys you guys had your time. Let's <laughs> going to move on here. Um interesting piece of piece of piece, piece of legislation here where i didn't go super deep on this but basically it looks like uh there's a bill that congress is trying to get passed to open up um platforms to apps from from anywhere so basically like trying to break out of the the like mobile specifically mobile application ecosystem which is one of the key security controls you know one of the main reasons that we're not dealing with uh, malicious apps all the time on our mobile phones is, you know, the Google Play Store, the Apple Store. Like every time you hear about people's phones getting hacked or malicious apps and stuff like that, it's because somebody jailbroke their their phone and installed some shady app from, you know, some third party uh, app store, which, which do exist. You know, there, there are some out there um, that aren't quite as well maintained. So this is this is one of those things that's uh, a, a little bit baffling. Like, a, 
I assume it has something to do with the battle between Apple and Epic, you know, yeah. and and what they charge uh, app developers on the App Store, which you know is egregious in some cases. You know, they've made some concessions and said, okay, you know, if you're a smaller yeah. developer. Or for the first couple of years, you know, we're we're only going to skim twenty percent, not not the full forty percent or whatever, Apple Apple has done there, but um, but yeah, saying saying making it a default to be able to install an APK for from anywhere is objectively a bad move. Well, <laughs> you know, not- it, it's it's really an interesting comment because I think the cybersecurity story that was written here is a side effect of what was attempted to be done. It had nothing to do with security. It has everything to do with business, monopolies, controlling markets, price fixing to whatever you want, right? It has everything to do with all of that stuff and absolutely nothing to do with cybersecurity. And cybersecurity is a a net negative impact. But we've always known that. As long as mobile devices have been around, well, let me rephrase, as long as modern mobile devices have been around, we've had this kind of concept of, relative security for them because they came through a walled garden or something that staged them that gave us a choke point to apply security but obviously the other impact of that is all the business impacts that are are Mm -hmm. potentially negative anti-competitive monopolistic etc and so there's a trade-off there between you know business freedom and consumer freedom against consumer security and I don't think anybody who's writing this from the Open App Markets Act ever even considered the impact on security. I think it was just 100% a side effect. I, I agree. I mean, there's you can look at regulation from so many points of view, um, and I certainly don't want to get into that and cause any kind of controversy. But there are there are pros and there are cons to it. it you know, if you're if you're a thinking person, you know what those are. But what I don't think is a good idea is having government step in and tell companies that are working well <laughs> that they should pass their security stuff through Congress. Because, you know, Congress's tagline could be Congress because it works so well, right? <laughs> like in, in, in a very, very um sarcastic way like there's just no way that that's going to work the reason that our phones have become as good as they are you know 10 15 years ago i would never have logged into my bank on my phone i guess 15 years ago i probably couldn't have i i wouldn't have even 10 years ago ordered anything online with my phone it must be feeding time. Um, and today I use my phone just like I use my laptops. And it's because companies like Google and and Apple have paved the way for that security. And so, you know, it's one thing to protect business and another thing to put security at risk, which will ultimately hurt business. If these companies are getting compromised, if they're leaking customer data, if there are all these issues they need to remediate, if these breaches get bigger and bigger and there's more damage and people get their identities stolen and all this kind of stuff, that too will affect business. It's not just, it's not binary. It's not either we have strict control over companies and tell them what they can and can't do, or we have security. It's all interconnected now. Everything 
that we do online. Uh, let's even take business out of it. Let's take the consumer, you know, put the consumer front and center. You can't take security out of those transactions because the consumer's almost always the one who gets hurt. Yeah, uh, I'm going to throw out an unpopular opinion so that the Twitter sphere can yell at me and, and make fun of me. I don't think security makes a lick of difference for the massive buyers across the board. Ah. They do not care. They just don't care. They will yeah, gladly trade their their security on their mobile device for convenience. If they can get their pizza delivered five minutes earlier, if they can order the correct item off Amazon with a one quick one click less, they will give away all of their security requirements. Now, that doesn't mean that as an industry, we should allow that, right? There, I agree with Katie in stating that there's a gray area here where there has to be a balance. But if it's left up to the consumer, they will not vote with their feet unless there is such a massive compromise. And even then, it's been proven that most of the time they still don't care. No, I agree. Well, I, mean, I, I, I agree on the consumer side, but the business will still get hit. If there's a consumer breach, maybe they're the ones who are going to pay the fines. They're the ones who are they going to have pay to fines. replace. Yeah. And then yeah, that cost is going to be passed along to the consumer no matter what you do. Sure. So I, I definitely agree with you. I think especially in the U.S., consumers could not care less. But that cost is going to be passed along to them in the long run. And, and so that idea of protecting businesses doesn't work. Yeah, that's the sad thing because they won't even know it because every phone will, or every, you know, uh, Apple phone will go up by five bucks across the board for every phone to be able to pay off those fines or to be able to cover the insurance or whatever. And they won't even know it. They'll just think it's a cost of cost of living increase on the on the cost of the phone. But um, but I mean, I think we could I, it's a fun topic to debate the actual impact of legislation. Um and in this particular case, I think it, you know, might be the only way true security legislation might be the only way that we can actually secure those environments if we go as far as this this article said and actually you know just completely open it up to the world it's gonna it's gonna cause havoc for sure yeah i think um in apple's argument here is going to be that look the reason we built this giant successful app store you know that all these developers are making all this money off of in the first place is because we controlled the hardware we controlled the os uh, you know, we we set. Uh, you know, it's not just about uh, privacy and security and and the trust that they're building with customers here, but also the quality. You know, like like a, a lot of what going into the app store involves. You know, it's not just making sure there's not a backdoor in there. You know, it's making sure that uh, you know the the UI is put together correctly. You know, there there's certain uh, uh, requirements that have to do with, with quality. You know, mm -hmm. that that keep. You know some of the the more garbage apps out of there and, and give you a kind of consistent high quality experience on on the on the device and once you start messing with that formula you know you're you're, you're going to break that and and that's going to be apple's argument here is is sure is. <laughs> yep. look look you're, you're messing with the formula that created this huge market that benefits you know these hundreds of thousands if not millions of developers yep yep for sure all right, uh, a few new products here. We're not going to go real deep on. Uh, we're running short on time. I want to get to the squirrel stories here, but uh, they, they are worth mentioning. Uh, so Google made an acquisition here. For a while, there's been a product out there called Cloud Ready that basically made it easy to put 
uh, Google's Chrome OS, what they put on their, uh, you know, their, their Chromebooks uh, that allow you to put it on pretty much any laptop, you know, help you streamline some of the issues you'd have with, uh, you know, dealing with firmware and stuff like that. And, and they've acquired this company, uh, Neverware, in, in 2020. And now they're, they're throwing out this, um, uh, you know, they're rebranding as Chrome OS Flex. And the idea here is to make it easy to take old PCs and Macs uh, or, or maybe current ones for whatever reason you might have that you want to put Chrome OS on them, make it really easy to put Chrome OS on them. And also they're going to have an enterprise management uh, uh, tool there for you to manage those. So interesting so, uh, new product there. Uh, assume we're going to see that more in certain industries than others, right? Education. Yep. So. So break out all those old laptops that you that you have sitting in a corner and go ahead and slap Chrome OS on them and then still never use them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, honestly, all my all my <laughs> all my Chromebooks the the devices are so old now. 2 gigs of RAM, 4 gigs of RAM just isn't enough to run Chrome. Sorry. Jeez. Sorry Google. <laughs> then the other one here is uh called Passage. A uh, very interesting one uh where the, so they're focusing on Biometric user authentication, you know, but the the point of this company is that biometrics have been kind of limited to devices, you know, like like we've seen them for, you know, getting into my laptop or my phone. Uh, I, I've got a fingerprint reader or I've got a face unlock. Uh, but what about websites? What about other places that you authenticate? Uh, and it has been possible for a while to use your built-in um, fingerprint reader, biometric readers to do that. Um, but not a lot of sites support it, you know, and, and there's kind of middleware that you can use to, to kind of hack it to make it work that, that hasn't been real great. So I think that's what the push is here is to make it simple and easy for developers to add biometric authentication to existing websites. Wasn't there, a, I mean, sometime in the last six months, you and I talked about, um, can't remember the name of a of the startup that had gotten the funding that did exactly this. They had a, a little library you put in your website and it would ping your phone and allow you to use your biometric on your phone to auth to the website. Sounds like a similar similar offering. I think th this is the initial authentication though. I think that was more of like a two FA type type uh, gotcha. scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's gotcha. the main difference here is is uh, this is going to replace your username password field. Good. I hope it does. I'm so tired of username passwords. Yeah. And then of course SSO is is still around, you know. <laughs> like it's it's such a fragmented market, you know, how how we how we get into different applications. Indeed. All right. So I don't I don't know if you guys heard about this um I think it was the FBI that that so they talked about this on on PSW. Uh, you know, the, the situation where, um, you know, the, these two people had apparently stolen back then it was just millions of Bitcoin, you know, but, you know, Bitcoin uh, increased in value. Now it's three point six billion. Uh, so DOJ, yeah, Department of Justice sees this. And it's it's one of those ridiculous stories where, like, you just can't make this stuff up like um the so so guy and a lady and she makes the worst most cringy rap that you've ever seen um some people will say it, it, it's so bad you just have to go watch it I, i'm gonna go ahead and say don't um yeah if, if you I've do watch some, this some some pretty bad <laughs> so, stuff 
they're, they're making a movie of it. Net, Netflix ordered a movie about this, and it's the same guy that put together the Fire Festival documentary. Um, and uh, what else did he do? He did the he did one of the um, Theranos uh, documentaries. So it make, makes sense that he would he would uh, do something on this. But uh, <laughs> the Bonnie and Clyde of Bitcoin. I, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I, I, Adrian, why are you bagging on Rosal Khan? Don't do that. She's an amazing rapper. I, I like she uh, like she's got I the didn't name Razzle Khan. Like that's the best name ever. Uh, <laughs> you might as well, Gus, you might as well post that in the Discord as well. Yeah, so if Razzle you want to watch it. Uh, we're, we're we're gonna we're gonna crocodile Wall Street. Like if you want, if if you <laughs> if, if if you're a masochist, go for it. Uh, I'm not. Gonna I am still listening to some RazzleCon tonight. Uh, is is poker night with my friends? We're gonna be listening to RazzleCon in the background. You're putting that on for sure. My my condolences to your friends. Yes. So I, speaking of names, I I came up with a name for this type of uh, documentary. I'm calling them dumpster mentaries. I like dumpster mentaries. I like that. Yeah, so they're dumpster you know fires do? and document documentaries of dumpster fires. We need to start having uh, the the crack production team at ESW here needs a dumpster fire graphic that we can bring up for the dumpster fire story Ooh. of the week too. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great idea. All right, and our second oh, squirrel spicy sp- takes. Thank thank you yeah. thank you boys in the background. <laughs> spicy takes. I Thanks. love it. Um, so my second squirrel story here actually takes us a little bit closer to where we began talking about space and Pluto and things like that. Uh, but Virgin Galactic has opened ticket sales to the general public for just under a whole 50 K under half a million dollars. You can get a ticket to space, otherwise known as flying really high, but not quite going so high that you have to do (laughs) re-entry. Um, but yeah, otherwise you known as flying really high. I love that. Otherwise known as flying I, really high. <laughs> I hate this argument about how high do you have to go for it to be space? You know what? Like you could burn up and die on the way back down. How about that? How about that? That's that's what we're that, going to call that space. That sounds like space. Okay? Not not really really high and then and then fly back down. You know, not, none of that BS. Space is, you know, if if the you know reentry nose cone isn't angled right you burn up and you die that's that's how you know you've been in space okay but adrian i'm old school but adrian but adrian <laughs> think of the think of look at that look at the page story 21 think of the two things you could buy afterward i mean that's pretty amazing yep so there's some perks uh for that four hundred and fifty thousand dollar ticket which you don't have to pay all at once i think it's only 150 up front and then you pay the rest later um you get to call yourself an astronaut I mean that's that's what they're calling you. You're you're not because you didn't risk burning <laughs> up on reentry. So uh, well, you can call yourself an astronaut at any time. At, yeah, yeah. People are going to call you something else though. There there be some. <laughs> yeah, there there'll be a different term for people that wow, go and, and Adrian on Virgin is, Galactic is, and, Adrian and call call themselves up. astronauts. There'll be a special worked term for up those on people. this topic. Worked yeah. up. You also get an opportunity to buy an astronaut edition Range Rover. And you get a custom Under Armour spacesuit. So everything Done. is brand Lock new. It up. Like, every, like, not only is it half a million for a ticket, 
you know, but there's <laughs> just all these additional uh, uh, brand partnerships here that just make this whole thing just feel so icky. No, like I, I, what are you talking about? The chance to have Under Armour spacesuit? Oh my God, I would wear that to bed every night. Mm. That visual, Adrian. Well, listening to your RazzleCon. Well, exactly. I would wear my Under Armour spacesuit, RazzleCon, and driving my Range Rover to poker night. That's what I'm going to do tonight. Uh, you do that. I'm going to go to space camp in, in Huntsville and listen to David Bowie. And uh, you can call yourself an astronaut too. I could, but I won't because I, <laughs> I didn't risk burning up on re-entry. And with that, uh, do we have uh, we have some Pluto images? Uh, oh, look nice at that! Image from the fly. oh my goodness! Wow, <laughs> I love it. That is fantastic. Oh, I love you guys. You guys are great. <laughs> I'm hearing a space odyssey in my head. Oh my goodness! That's I great. love it. Uh, thanks so much, Tyler and Katie, for joining me today. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, I love you guys. 